Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right. Go ahead and close your eyes. I'm going to read this again. Dial down, relax your muscles. Take a deep breath. Breathe in, breathe out. Okay. Don't, don't breathe so hard, Bunny. That's, that's going to defeat the purpose. Just relax. <laughs> just relax. Here, just let this wash over you and, and see what you picture as the Holy Spirit gives you insight. He... The Father has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. The Father has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom you have redemption. The forgiveness of your sins. This is the word of the Lord. The Father did this. The Father delivered us. This word delivered is ruamai, and it means to rescue someone out of acute danger, a mortal danger, the worst kind of danger. It would be to rescue someone from a burning building. It would be to rescue someone who is drowning, or in this case, it would be to rescue someone who is perishing. And that word perishing is a big, big eternal kind of perishing. The Father delivered us. We didn't save us. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't turn over a new leaf. We didn't start to get right. We didn't, you know what I'm talking about? We didn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We didn't decide and then change our lives. Praise be to us. No, that didn't happen. The Father grabbed hold of us when we belonged to the devil, when we belonged to the flesh, while we were slaves of sin. The Father laid hold of our hearts and he pulled us out of that spiritual death and blindness and he caused our hearts to see Jesus as beautiful and to find him attractive and we said, we don't get much more credit for that than you get credit for saying, Oh, praise God you're here to the fireman who pulls you out. Do you see what I'm saying? You say, well, yes, Tim, but at least I believed. At least I repented. No, 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 hold on. You repented and you believed because he grabbed hold of you. Nobody wants God until God exercises influence on their heart first. Nobody wakes up. Nobody says, I need change without the Holy Spirit first drawing and calling and brooding and breathing upon us. It takes a measure of righteousness for us to want to change. And unless he breathes on you and grabs you and starts to work on you, you don't even want to change. You don't even see the miserable situation of your life. It's the Father who delivered us from the domain of darkness. And this word domain is interesting because in a few, you know, just a few more words, he's going to say kingdom. I don't know if your translation has the same word rendered for domain of darkness, the domain, as for kingdom of beloved son. But in the Greek, they are not the same word. The word for domain here is exousia, which has to do with 
the right to control or hold power over a thing. We were all of us enslaved to the kingdom of darkness, to the rule of darkness. And I shouldn't even call it a kingdom because it's not a kingdom. It has no king. It has illegitimate power. It has illegitimate rebellious authority that is, that is using gifts given by God and abusing them against his good causes and purposes. You can't even call the rule of darkness a really a kingdom. It has no king. It worships no king. It worships self. Each person in the kingdom of darkness, each devil in the kingdom of darkness, each fallen angel in the kingdom of darkness, ultimately is serving a kingdom of self. Self-interest and bitterness. Self-pity. The, the reason that self-pity and bitterness and resentment and slander are fruits of the flesh and everything of the flesh is of the devil, just so we're clear. I know we imagine that there's this wide, neutral territory that way over here is like the Lord and his, and his spirit and his influence in our lives. And then there's this wide middle ground where it's neutral and it's, well, that's where we kind of live most of the time, choosing to dip at certain times over here into this extra salty Lord goodness place. But then sometimes when we're really naughty, we dip into this yucky, ooh, poopy de devil place. But actually the truth is there's a line right through the center of a human called the flesh and the spirit. And whatever is of the flesh, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. That which is fleshly is demonic. And that which comes from the natural way of a person is itself demonic, even if they're not demon-possessed. Do you hear me? So the issue is not this wide territory. No, no, no. The issue, says Paul, is that everyone is born in the flesh and therefore, Ephesians chapter 2, is a slave to the devil. I know that's not very popular or palatable. You couldn't preach that and have most people feel good about it. You just said, I'm a slave to the devil. Actually, I didn't. The Bible did. And so did Jesus. Remember when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees? And they say, we don't know who you are. We follow Moses. And he says, well, you actually aren't following Moses. Well, whatever. He said, if you, if you, if you listen to the son, the son would set you free. Well, we're not free. We're, I'm sorry, we're not slaves. We're free already. We're children of Abraham. He goes, if you were children of Abraham, you'd do what Abraham did. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. I showed up. In Abraham's life and he loved me now I'm here in the flesh with you and you hate me that proves you are not Abraham's children you're the children of your father you guys know where I'm at I'm in John chapter 8 you're children of your father the devil that's pretty intense that'll, that'll that sermon will fly really well and why because they're doing what is quote natural isn't that amazing there's not this wide territory that's neutral ground. No, there's a line between, in, in us between spirit and flesh. And when we are led by the spirit, we're full on in the things of the Lord. And when we're led by the flesh, we're full on in the things of the other kingdom. And this says that all of us were once under the power, under the rule, under the rule. We were addicted. We were powerless. We were oppressed. In some sense, you could say we were victims, and yet, we all voluntarily did it, didn't we? 
walked under that slave mindset, and sometimes still do, if we're honest. You can have a good morning and then have a bad afternoon. You can be in the spirit and then something happen and you choose to walk in the flesh. Don't you wish it was just like, you know, 20 years ago I said a prayer and after that I've never sinned? But the reality is it's a daily walk. And what I'm saying is, how about we realize we don't have this wide swath of neutral ground? And how about we be mindful to make sure that we are walking by the Spirit in all things at all times? Surely that's the way of life Jesus walked in. And surely that's the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is not a whole life that's devoted to the things of God. No, no, no. It's a life that's devoted to intimacy with God who is present here now. It's a life devoted to... All right, I'm, I'm, I'm got, I got, that's a whole sermon and I really want to preach it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He did that. He, he rescued us out of that blindness and that deadness and that slavery and that hardness of heart. He did that. And it says he transferred us. This Greek word for transfer means to completely remove someone from one place and relocate them in another. And many times it is talked about as causing someone to change sides. I love that. We changed what army we fought for. The father did that. He grabbed hold of our hearts and switched the team we were playing for. This morning as I was thinking about this, you guys already know what movie I was thinking of. Anyone want to venture a guess? The Matrix. In The Matrix, everybody is, is plugged into a machine system and they're being used as human batteries and in order to keep the humans from waking up and rejecting the system, their brains are fed fantasies. Their brains are fed fantasies to keep them docile. And Neo and a group of other renegades are going around, and Morpheus, really, who's the John the Baptist character, is waking people up to the fact that they are slaves, that they belong to it. They were born into a system, a system they can't see or smell or touch, a prison for their minds. And their job is to wake people up so that they switch sides and stop going along with the system. I find that so, I've loved that ever since I first watched it. I am a cliched, uh, what's my generation? Whatever, 90s kid, you know. I'm a cliched person of my generation who, you know, at Christian college watched The Matrix on VHS and said, and said, I've never seen the gospel any more clear than this. And mom said, but they're all weird and everyone's wearing black. And why is there so much violence? <laughs> Bunny, I had to have, sit down and do a podcast interview with just you and me commenting on culture. Because I don't think our views would be the same and it would be a lot of fun. It'd be a lot of fun. But the Father rescued us out of this slavery that everyone is born into that no one seems to know about because it's deceptive. The whole kingdom of darkness is rooted in lies. The whole kingdom of God is rooted in truth. And it's not, it's not as simple as everyone receives, a, you know, a, everyone stands there and gets to make a decision. No, you don't get to decide if you're born either. Some of us are like so obsessed with people having their rights it's really hard for us to make an adjustment to the real world in which people don't 
That's not how life works, man. Is it how life should work? Yeah. But is it how life works? No. And is it God's will? No. But here we are. I, there's, a process, there's a project of missionaries try, getting the gospel to the ends of the earth, and they call it the Justice Project because in their mind, it's just not fair that people don't get to hear about Jesus. Does that resonate with your heart at all? It does with mine. Is it fair that I grew up in a Christian family with clean water and good health care and people who loved me and two parents that loved each other and were faithful? Is that fair when people all over the rest of the world don't have those things? I'm not just talking about the spiritual blessings, but the physical blessings. No, it's not fair. Maybe, and, and like in a similar fashion that like if you, like John the Baptist said, if you have two cloak, if you have two shirts, you should share with the person who has no shirt. And if you have food more than enough, you should share with the person who has no food. Doesn't it make sense? Isn't it an injustice issue that we have Jesus and other people don't? You go, it's not really a justice issue. You could say, eh, it's not really a, a justice issue. Fine, but I feel like it is because it's not like they're worth less than me. It's not like they're worth less than us. Right? Are you hearing me? It's like, so I love that stuff. But instead of going, the world's not fair, you know, and it should be, it's like, how about we joyfully go about making the world look more like God's called it to look? Uh, I want to say all this stuff about the kingdom and how we never build the kingdom. At no point in the Bible does it ever say that we build the kingdom or any humans ever build the kingdom of God. Ever once. It doesn't happen. It's never used. That phrase is never used. Nor do we build the church. Jesus builds the church and nobody builds the kingdom because the kingdom is already fully furnished and complete. So when we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light, we're not then building the kingdom. We inherit a kingdom. It's already complete. We're placed in a fully furnished thing. The kingdom is wonderful. We just got woken up to it. We just got put in it. We just got placed in it. Notice how nothing he said so far has to do with heaven and hell. When we die. How many of you know I am 100% passionate about heaven when we die? Raise your hands. I am. Forever, 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 being in the presence of God, the brightness of the display of his glory, like, ah, better than we can imagine. The reunion of all the saints, I believe it 100%. I believe in hell, guys. I know it's not as popular anymore, but I believe in hell. I believe in a place of pain, torment, and destruction where the presence of God is not felt in a loving way, but because of the distortions and the, and the brokenness of the nature of the souls there, the presence of God is, is felt as torture. If Christ is in you and you pass into the flames of his holiness, then all that is not his holiness will burn off of you. But what happens if the depth of you hates him? What does his presence do to you then? I believe what Jesus said about hell is real. So I'm not minimizing heaven and I'm not minimizing hell. And I think a lot of us run away from those things because if we think about it too much, it's too much of a weight for us to bear. So we choose to change our theology to make better space for something we can handle. But Jesus is the one who taught it. I believe in the judgment day. I believe that there's a day coming when, when whatever you did with your one life comes up before a holy God. The eyes of whom... Like, he's, everything is uncovered and laid bare, Hebrews 4 says, before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And knowing that, 
What kind of manner ought we to then live our lives? Like, like, you don't hear me preach like this very often, do you? But these are facts. These are facts from your Bible. You, hear, you know what I emphasize. I emphasize grace. I emphasize love. I emphasize his goodness. I emphasize his mercy. I emphasize everything that I've come to know as I've related to him through my personal walk with him these past 20-something whatever years. But sometimes I wonder. That this last week I was taking a walk with him and he said, he said uh, well, I asked him the question. I said, in emphasizing the this-worldly transformation of the gospel, Father, have I have I accidentally minimized the value and the glory of the life to come? And he just kind of looked at me with a grin as if to say, yeah. Isn't that interesting? I don't think we do our life in this life any favors to minimize the heaven later and the hell later. I really don't. But notice that this passage is focused on the present slavery to sin and belonging to the demonic realm and the present belonging being transferred over into the kingdom of God, kingdom of Jesus. Yes, the implications for life after death are totally real, guys. They're totally real and amazing and staggering. And if we actually believe it, it'll change us. It it will. It'll change us. I loved Penn, Penn, you know Penn and Teller, the magicians? That dude, I remember years ago watching an article where he said this guy had come up to him after a magic show and had shared a little New Testament with him and told him that he really matters to God and he really matters to him and that he really wanted him to have a relationship with Jesus, have his sins forgiven and go to heaven forever. And Penn said, people were really harsh to that guy online. Who does he think he is? He's so condescending. How dare he have, think his views are right and other people's views are wrong? How dare he judge Penn? You, you, you tracking with this? Yeah. And, and this, is what, this is what Penn said. He's an atheist, or at least at the time he wasn't. He may still be. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. He said, how in the world can you be offended by somebody who sincerely believes that there's a holy God and a heaven and a hell and a loving Savior and, and, and actually cares about people enough to deal with the social discomfort of warning them in love. How could I be offended? He said, I don't agree with him, but how could I be offended? This is what he said. He said, here's who I don't respect. I respect that man. He loved me enough to say something. If I believed what he believed, I'd be telling everybody. He said, here's who I don't respect. The person who claims to believe that and tells no one. How full of crap is that person? How loveless, how much do you have to hate somebody that you're unwilling to inconvenience or embarrass yourself to cross the road and warn them that they're headed off a cliff? How much do you have to hate somebody? Isn't that interesting? This is pent. Like, don't you like it when the atheists are like making better sense than your own fear? You know what I mean? Because my own fear is like, oh, that'll be a bad witness to Jesus. Will it though? Since when do we evaluate what is right and wrong based on how people feel about it. Since when do we evaluate what is love and what is not based on how people respond to it? If someone's running off a cliff and you yell vociferously to get them to stop, well, he was really mean that day. You should, I don't really like that preacher. He preaches with a lot of anger. 
Does he preach with anger or urgency? And if people are, if people are killing themselves, is that urgency incorrect or is that urgency appropriate? Can you imagine gently, gently, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you might not want to, oh, oh, too late, okay, next one maybe, hey, excuse me, I was just wondering if you could, okay, well, we'll guess another one, okay, well, hey, at some point, you're going to be like, hey, stop, and, and then, of course, there's a few people who'd be like, what the heck is your problem, until they realize there's a freaking cliff, and then they're going to hug you, right, Are, who's tracking with what I'm saying, the father grabbed hold of us when we were dead in sins, under slavery to, to the demonic realm, and he placed us in the kingdom of his beloved son. Yes. Beloved son. He did that. He transferred us into the kingdom. Of, and I have so much to say about the kingdom, and I'm not going to do it, because that deserves its whole own thing. But, the, but I'll, I can't at least say this. The kingdom is the gospel. The, the church is fully called to enter into the kingdom now. We don't belong to this world. In fact, this is weird. We're time travelers. We belong to the future. We belong to the time that is to come where heaven and earth are made one and God's will is already being done. We belong to that future. In fact, we belong so much to that future that our values are foreign our, our, our hearts are different. We're already engaged in that eternal behavior. And do you know, like, when we have our sacraments, the sacraments of praying and preaching and the Lord's Supper and baptism, the sacraments of offerings and confession, we are, we are, the actual kingdom is present. It's not a metaphor. Oh, Kate posted this amazing thing that Matthew said the other week. They were filling the communion cups. Who saw this on Facebook? It was good theology, guys. It might not be Mennonite theology, but it is biblical theology. And I don't take that the wrong way. I love my Mennonite heritage. But, but we're not the bastion of truth. We're one group. He said, as they were filling the cups, oh, I thought this was actually Jesus' blood. And I thought, yes, yes, excellent. Because the sacraments... And, the, and us, and, and uh, like everything that is the kingdom is not a theory. It's not a, it, we live in this world that believes that science is real, matter is real, and spirit is kind of a metaphor. No, 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 no. You are the presence of the kingdom. And, and this body and blood is Jesus. It's not a, it's not a symbol. It's the kingdom breaking in, and it's, and it's a window into reality. It's not meant to be like, oh, this bread and wine is sacred, but the rest of the creation is secular. No, no, no. The sacred things of the kingdom reveal the true nature of the whole universe. So when you find the image of God in, the, in a saint fully completed, you now see the rightful condition of every person ever made. When you take this meal as though it's the body and blood of Jesus, you now see that all the physical realm was meant to carry his glory and cry holy, holy. 
But we are the presence, the kingdom. The, the, the church has entered the kingdom and it, it belongs to the kingdom. And it is the visible expression, the real, tangible expression of the kingdom in the midst of a present fallen age. It's not a metaphor. It doesn't just come with a message. We are a manifestation. I, what I'm saying is beyond my understanding. I don't know what I'm saying to you. I just know it's true. I want to understand what I'm saying to you, but I don't. Is that all right? We carry the kingdom. We manifest the kingdom. We're never building it. We've entered it and we're participating in it. And to the extent that we enjoy and participate in it, we'll manifest it. Again, we don't build it. The kingdom, okay, that's enough of that. That's too much on that. And it's the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom, this phrase, in whom, in him in the Greek, is just such a little phrase, in him. It's the two two-letter words, in who, in him. And, and for Paul, it's, it sums up his gospel. Everything in creation is redeemed in Jesus. Every good blessing you will ever have comes to you if you are in Jesus, and it comes to you through Jesus. Every good fruit you will ever bear in your life comes to you as you are in him and he is in you. This co-dwelling thing that we have is heaven on earth, guys. We Christians live in Genesis 2. We live in Genesis 2. He's in me. I'm in him. And I walk with him in the cool of the day. And we have, we have communion. It's unbroken. I don't make it happen. I let it happen. I remember him. I call him to mind and he's already there before that. And the extent to which we can let the truth of our in him transform our conscious experience of the world, each one of us will become that peace we're meant to be. I, I, oh man, we give so much time and attention to stuff that we're not meant to. If we would just learn to give time and attention, I can't say the word just in there, as we are learning to give more time and attention to the one who is in us, we're in heaven already. We're already there, we're already dwelling in heaven. We're already there. We're already there. Like, I read this this week. The reason, this is a quote. The reason famines and earthquakes and natural disasters don't scare Christians is because his love has cast out our fear. And that's developed through just the regular personal walk, sweeping the sanctuary with Jesus. Doing health care with Jesus. Having conversation while you're communing with Jesus at the same time. Cleaning your house while communing with Jesus. It's not big stuff. The little stuff is the big stuff. The, the letting him handle the big stuff and you worry about the little stuff. Remember Jesus builds the church. We don't build the church and nobody builds the kingdom. Jesus will build the church as we enjoy communion with him. He'll build the church. As we just obey his little promptings and his voice and enjoy the fellowship with him, he'll build the church. He'll reveal the kingdom. 
Surely Jesus, as he was working as a carpenter, was simply talking to the Father in heaven about each small practical task that he was doing. Surely that's the way he lived. And surely the reason that he lived as a regular person for 30 years is so that we could. Again, I don't know what I'm talking about. I want to. I'm walking out what I'm talking about, but I don't understand it. I, I'm walking this out, but I don't understand it, guys. And, and we're not called, we're not called, so this is something I notice we do. We relate to each other on the basis of what's wrong. So habitually, because that's how the world operates. And we haven't yet learned as the church how to relate to each other honestly on the basis of how blessed we are. And, and there's a sense in which we, man, I don't know how to say this the right way. We feel bad for feeling so good. And so we, when you ask how I'm doing, I come up with something that's wrong with my life so that we'll all feel humble and connected. Yeah. I, mm. But as we're walking in these daily little things, just dwelling in him, we're in him, guys. We're in him. And because we're in him, we have access to him. And because we have access to him, we talk to him. And he talks to us. And he leads us. And we have questions and we ask our questions and sometimes it's a process before we get an answer and sometimes his answer is do what you want. And sometimes if we have idols in our heart, we hear a wrong answer through the idol and he lets that happen too. And it's just this big journey with him of relationship. And as that process is going on and somebody says, how are you doing? It's like, it's like maybe, just maybe, like Paul says, Though inwardly, I'm sorry, other way around. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And so when you ask a Christian, how's it going? It's like, well, which do you want to know about? The outward that's wasting away or the inward that's being renewed? I don't, what do you, because half the time we relate to each other on the basis of the outward that's wasting away. I got that bill to pay. This person's divorced. This person's breaking my heart. This is going wrong in the world. That's happening over there. This is happening at home. And this is, or do you want to know about the inward that's being renewed day by day? I've never been happier in my whole life. I have more peace than I've had in years. Like, I feel like I'm in heaven already. And it doesn't make sense to me that I have this much peace and joy and hope given my circumstances. But I guess that's what happens when you walk with them. I don't know. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? It's like everything we have is in Jesus. And because it's in Jesus and we're connected to him, we have access to everything he has. Verse 14, in whom, oh, and I guess I got to say this, the beloved son, right? Where's, where's, where's he getting that? Where's, where's Paul getting that? Two times in Jesus's life that we have record of, I suspect it probably happened a lot more often because of those two times, we have an audible voice show up in the, in the scene in his baptism and on his Mount of Transfiguration. His baptism, Jesus goes down into the water, and then it says the Holy Spirit descended on him in a manner like a dove, Didn't, did not actually say that a dove flew out of heaven and landed on him. I know that's how people paint the picture. The Holy Spirit descended on him in a manner like a dove. 
And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right? And then again on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. And then I love this one. Listen to him. (laughs) Listen to him. Which leads to a whole sermon called Jesus is the point of all our mountaintop experiences with God. And listening to him is the point of all our mountaintop experience. But because we're in the beloved, we are the beloved. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Tattoo it on your heart. The way the Father loves Jesus is the way that Jesus has loved you and does love you and actively works out his love toward you. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. He pleased the Father at all times. You can't possibly love someone more than the Father loves Jesus. And Jesus said, that's how I love you. I want to say it again. You can't possibly love someone more than the Heavenly Father loves Jesus. And now Jesus has turned his sights to you and says, that's how I love you. And then he says this, remain in my love. Don't give yourself an excuse to step out from under my love. But I don't deserve it, and this has happened, and that has happened. Well, just let me prove it first. Let me earn it. You know, I don't deserve to do all this weird stuff we do without realizing we've done it. Yeah, I know you love me and stuff, but they are upset with me, so i got to figure that out, because if that's wrong, then come on. Come on, come home. Come back. Come back. Quit severing your attachments to truth. Come back. Come on back. As the Father loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. We've been transferred into the beloved, into the kingdom of the beloved. And now we are the beloved. This is, who, this, is what we, this is what we have. It says, in whom we have. I know that I'm going to make much of the word we, ha- the word we have. <laughs> it's the Greek word exomen, which means we presently possess this. We presently possess. We're not waiting for this thing. We currently have it in our possession. Everything that's being expressed in these verses is, yes, it has future implications. You know I believe in heaven and hell. You know I believe in the glory to come. But everything being expressed in this is about what we have right now. We have it now because of Jesus, because of the Father, because of his great love. He's placed it on us, man. He, he, he rescued us. We switch sides. We switch teams. Now he's set his affection upon us and he's put his presence in us and we're in him and he's in us and we get to live daily in this reality and the extent to which this reality transforms this little thing you write in here and this little thing you write in here is the extent to which I'm a manifestation of the kingdom. Who puts the cap on how much heaven comes to earth in my life? It ain't God God ain't putting a cap on that thing. You remember those stupid go-karts? They're not stupid. I love them. You're driving through like Ocean City and you see all these little people driving their go-karts around and then they're playing mini golf and all that. Don't you want to go in there and like remove the governor from those dumb go-karts and see what's possible? You're like, oh yeah, I'm going to beat you now. And then you can't. You get, and you're like, no, give me the gas, baby. Give me the gas. You want to like drift. With, you know what I mean? You drift, we tear, okay, you get me. Watch the original Cars movie. Good old, uh, 
Hudson Hornet, the dock. Is that what? Yeah, that's how you drift. That was a great movie. It's an oldie but a goodie. Gabe, you loved that movie so much when you were little. I remember I drove you out to uh, Sean and Kayleen's wedding with uh, Marty and Jess were just like starting to date. And we were all like, it was, it was an interesting time. And I took you out there because I was doing the wedding. I think you watched Cars the entire time driving there and the entire time home. So. Nothing has changed. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, my word, you guys, this word redemption is huge. Uh, if you look it up, you're going to see things that I don't believe. They're going to be, oh, redemption is being, you've, you, you're being bought back. You're being bought back. You, you're a slave to the devil, and somehow Jesus bought you back. No. No. Jesus is not going to pay off some thugs. That, that didn't happen. The devil doesn't have that kind of power. Because that's not the meaning of this word redemption. This word redemption means to set free. It means to release. It means to deliver. It means to deliver from slavery. It means to deliver from oppression. It means to deliver from prison. It means to set free. Now, did Jesus pay an awfully high price to deliver us? He did. But did he pay it to the devil? Heck no, he crushed the devil. Just like the ancient prophecy says, the first prophecy back in the garden. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity, this is what God says to Eve, I will put enmity between your seed and the serpent's seed. He, your seed will crush his head and you will what? Bruise his heel. Oh, bruise his heel, crush his head. Come on people, think it through. Which would you rather have, a crushed head or a bruised heel? I'm going with bruised heel, everybody. This is not a payment made to the devil. This is the, this is the defeat of Satan's sin and death. This is the crushing blow to, dark, to the whole kingdom of darkness. The in fact, the picture, the biblical picture of redemption, see, and the, and the church used to struggle with this. For, for thousands of years, we've been trying to figure out what's the best way to talk about this. And so the, the early church fathers, they said that, that they understood redemption as Christ won a great victory over sin and death. And then a dude named, well, should we, no, I don't want to criticize people who are in heaven. Then a dude came along and he said, well, if, if, he, if it's ransom, if it's redemption, that really kind of implies he paid a debt to the devil. We don't really want to say that, do we? genius, nobody was saying that. Quit saying that. So he says, well, I guess it'd be better to understand it as we're paying, we're paying the father. The father's the one who's angry and upset. The father's the one who's going to put us in hell. Maybe, maybe Jesus saves us from the father. Is that better? How is that better? Read your Bibles, bro. The word... Re <laughs> You hear what I'm saying? Both of those ideas are bad. The redemption doesn't mean Jesus pays off the devil. And praise God, it doesn't mean he pays off the Father. Jesus, if Jesus saves us from the Father, how are you going to feel safe to go to the Father? The whole point of this passage is it's the Father who saves us. Help me. Help me. 
You know what I mean? Help. No wonder we got daddy issues. We go to church and we get told that dad's a big abusive guy in the sky who murdered an innocent person, so now he's not mad anymore so you can relate to him. Help. And the, the picture of redemption is, is the rescue out of Egypt. I, this is God's, you know, tagline. If he had a tagline on his email and his blog, it would be, I am the Lord your God who ransomed you out of slavery in Egypt. I am the Lord your God who redeemed you out of Egypt. How did, did God redeem them out of Egypt? Did he pay off Pharaoh? Uh, uh, sorry, Mr. Pharaoh. Uh, I'll give you this if, you, if you'll just let these people go. Yeah, he crushed the gods of Egypt in a contest of strength. And here's the, here's the stinky part. Have you ever read the story and realized that really what turned Pharaoh's heart was the death of the firstborn? Yeah. Of his own firstborn. And here's that, that. Does that ever mess with you? You're like, that's not fair. Those people just were under a bad king. How fair is it when people have a bad ruler? It's kind of war in general, though, isn't it? Who is the guy who said, why do we have to kill each other because our leaders don't like each other? That's not fair. I agree with that. But in the gospel, God's firstborn is what achieves our redemption. In, in the Pharaoh story, in the, in the Exodus story, it's a demonstration of power over the darkness. But in John chapter 12, Jesus says, as he's about to be crucified, he says, now, now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You go, what are you talking about? You're about to be judged before the religious leaders and the political leaders. What are you talking about? The world is going to be judged. And what are you talking about? The devils are going to have their way with you. They're going to do their worst to you. What are you talking about? They're going to be cast out. You're going to be cast out on a hill and lifted up on a cross, naked and humiliated and shamed publicly. What are you even talking about, Jesus? In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the redemption was a, was a display of God's power. And then, and then, when he takes them out and he makes covenant with them, the display of his power, instead of, having, instead of it causing people's hearts to fall out of love with everything else and in love with him, it causes them to withdraw from the presence of God. Don't you find it a crazy contrast? That it's not the power of Jesus that, dis that absolutely judges the world, exposes all the world and the values of the world and the kingdoms of the world for what they are. It's, 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 the, it's the weakness. Because in the weakness of God, not the power of God, in the weakness of God, the actual love is revealed. And that love put on display in the crucifixion exposes, condemns, judges the demonic world systems, the natural way that seems right that I was talking about earlier, represented by the religious leadership and the political leadership that put him on trial and crucify him. That's us. And it's exposed and judged as 
self-giving love is revealed and all the power of the demonic, it says that the ruler of this world will be cast out. A cosmic exorcism? A cosmic exorcism. Because now humanity is giving up the lordship of this dark realm that held us in sway as we see God's love displayed in Jesus, we go, get that off of me, I want this. And the devil is cast out. Of what? Out of hearts. Hearts that, hearts that wake up and see him and savor him and flee from everything before and make a clean break with it and put him on as a garment I'm, over time. In whom we have redemption, which is about release from the power of sin. The forgiveness of sins, which is about release from the guilt and shame of sin. We have redemption, release from the power of sin. We are not slaves of sin. And we, know, we, have, we don't need to be enslaved to any sins anymore, anymore. And if at any point we are, there is grace to be utterly and completely set free in this life these are mysteries, but they're true. Release from the power of sin, redemption, and release from the guilt. You know the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is you did it, you did it, and there are consequences. Shame is because you did it, you carry the imprint in your identity, and they're totally different things. God can forgive the guilt of your sin, but if you don't receive that forgiveness and let go of the shame of your sin, it's as though you aren't forgiven in terms of how you walk, in terms of how you relate to yourself and others. But in Jesus, we have release from the power of sin and we have forgiveness and forgiveness needs to deeply come in. I don't think we've explored fully, guys, the glory of forgiveness. Most of the issues that trip us up in life that I've dealt with and that I prayed others through inner healing for relate to a lack of the application of the blood to me and my identity and my beliefs. Most of the issues that trip us up are a broken identity because of the stain of shame from authentic guilt, either from sin done to us or by us. Guys, we, the, the biggest inner healing breakthrough that's ever happened is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The biggest transforming power to, to live what you were called to be and walk in freedom is the power of the gospel. The kingdom is the answer. The Lord Jesus is the one. And we've got his Holy Spirit. The, that's enough for today. Go ahead and stand. So what's the appropriate response? The the appropriate response is to go deep with him this week. The appropriate response is to set a time when each day, every single day this week, you are meditating on his goodness and love. The appropriate response is to, is to, is to take on Jesus' way of life, of only doing what he sees the Father doing, only saying what he hears the Father saying, of communing with him all day, every day. Jesus came and made disciples. He, he called the 12 to him and he, he called them so that they would be with him, so that they would walk with him. 168 hours a week. School's in session. If you give him 10 minutes a week, you get, you get 10 minutes of transformation. 
If you give them 168 hours a week, you get radical transformation because when people saw that the apostles who once denied him were now the ones ready to die for him, they said, what is going on? And they noticed that they had been with him. This is open. There's access, guys. It's time to get our eyes off of the lesser stuff onto the one thing. There's only one thing that's necessary. And it's time to go after it. Some of us have been going after it. I think all of us have been going after it to an extent. I think all of us would say, I want more. And I, I, I tweeted it. No, I Facebooked it last night because it was just like such a beautiful realization. Repentance doesn't even require the presence of sin. Repentance is just a turning of your heart more fully to the goodness of God than before. And when you look back on how much you trusted and loved him before, you're going to go, yay. Blah. Yuck. See, this is why sometimes these repentance prayers are like, God have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Everything I touch is evil. We're like, dude, you need to get an identity upgrade. But sometimes that prayer actually comes less from wallowing in self-pity and like yuckiness. Sometimes that is just the heart saying, now that I see who you are, Lord, like, you, who's tracking with me? Come on, like, you see who he is, and you go, oh, that's what life's supposed to look like. Okay, all right, come on, I keep trying to stop, and, I, and I'm not. All right, prayer team, somebody do something. <laughs> okay. Don't all rush the stage at once, guys. I'm going to start praying. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and love. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father. You did all this. It was your idea. You did this. You did this. You did this. You did this, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. God, I ask that you put a blessing on us this week, this week, God. Draw our hearts to remembrance of you. Draw our minds to remembrance of you, God. I pray for the application of your blood to our conscience. We are not slaves to sin anymore. We belong to you, Jesus.